Hello everyone, my name is Troy Bargeman and I am the host of a new podcast called Texperts. Uh, Texperts, it's a series designed to showcase innovative technology in the architectural, engineering, and construction industry. Um, some of our guests will vary, uh, but utilizing technology to provide meaningful change in communities um, and driving innovation in the industry. A little bit about myself, um, I've been with GBA for three years now, graduated from Missouri S&T with an architectural engineering degree, working towards my PE in electrical engineering, uh, hoping to take that soon. Today, our guest is Ed Rafter. Uh, Ed is a senior electrical engineer here at GBA. He's been in the mission critical industry for 40 plus years. Uh, I know he is involved in the Uptime Institute and was a member of the Uptime User Group, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit here today. Uh, also a life member of IEEE, which is pretty incredible. Before we dive into everything, I would like to talk about GBA and our mission critical group briefly. Um, we deal with just about everything to do with data centers and telecommunication facilities, um, anywhere from design to construction. We can help out with logistics, um, a little bit of real estate. We have some maintenance and service groups as well. Pretty awesome group and pretty exciting things that we're getting to do. Thanks for being here with us today, Ed. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Troy. I've been involved with the data center industry for 40 years. I've had the opportunity of seeing a lot of data centers, not just around the United States, but in Canada, South America, Europe, India, um, Singapore, uh, Thailand. Uh, going down my list. It's, it's been rewarding and uh, see a lot of very similar things and maybe the occasional differences. Thanks, Ed. I know Techsperts is supposed to be more about innovative technology um, and maybe with a little focus on one specific thing, but I want to talk about data centers and telecommunication facilities. They aren't one piece of technology, um, but it's a lot of technology that comes together to influence what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, and I want to dive into that with you, talk about where they've been, kind of how they started, and what you've seen along the way. Well, first of all, let me, let me try to define what we mean when we talk about a data center. It's a physical facility, um, a, a facility that organizations use to house their uh, critical software applications and data. It's what makes computing possible today. It's what makes using your smartphone possible today. Uh, inside of a data center, you'd find uh, computer systems for uh, applications, storage, you have communications equipment, um, routers, switches, firewalls, storage systems, um, and ap application delivery and controllers. The networking equipment and associated hardware that are needed uh, are also connected to the internet. They're connected internally to other equipment in the facility, but they're also connected to the world. And essentially your data center is the heart of this. The power and the cooling that drives that data center is generally in areas outside of that space. Uh, and they are also considered part of the critical infrastructure. Uh, they might include the UPS systems, the electrical equipment, the generator backup, 
uh, the, the cooling ventilation if necessary. All of that is in separate rooms around uh, the data center. Awesome. Thanks for that explanation, Ed. I know they've come a long way because today we have Facebook, Netflix, uh, our cell phones and all that stuff really wasn't around 40 years ago. Online banking really wasn't a thing, uh, so it's not like people were storing their banking information. They weren't getting their paychecks automatically deposited online. Um, all of those things are affected by data centers today. Now that we have all of that, can you talk about back in the 70s and 80s when you started and kind of what they look like then? Yes. So <clears throat> if you think back to the 70s and 80s, um, a data center was typically considered uh, an enterprise facility. Um, an enterprise facility is owned and operated by the business. Uh, whatever the needs are from a computing perspective, that data center handled that information. The physical side of, size of the data center depended upon the business. It depended upon what was needed, what the applications were. Uh, it, it, was, it could be very small or it could be very large. Um, some of the telecommunications uh, carriers at the time, they had their own data centers and they were typically the much larger. Uh, but again, it ran the spectrum of small to large, but primarily they were uh, enterprise type facilities. So in the data center that we see today, we see cabinets and rack lineups, very planned, very uh, organized. You have what is referred to as hot aisles or cold aisles. And essentially that's where cooling is, is provided to the uh, front of the equipment, just drawn through the equipment and the heat is dissipated out the other side. Back in the 70s and 80s, the rooms were not constructed that way. Um, many of the rooms, uh, they were essentially a, a hybrid. You had uh, uh, mainframe computers. So IBM was a big uh, provider of mainframe equipment at the time. Some of that equipment actually required its own specific power. It operated at 400 cycles per second, 400 hertz. Today, most of us are familiar with uh, the power that drives our lighting and all. That's 60 hertz power. Uh, mo most of the equipment that we're talking about in today's world, it operates off of 60 hertz power or it's converted to DC where it's used. In those days, the equipment required 400 hertz power. So where did that power come from? A generator was placed on the floor near the mainframe computer, and it actually generated the power required at 400 cycles per second. It was drawn by the equipment, and uh, essentially it, it required room. Additionally, you had what is referred to as tape libraries. So uh, when I say a tape li library, I'm referring to uh, a silo. Uh, a silo is a, 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 was a common feature in many data centers. It essentially was a big storage unit that uh, might take up uh, uh, 10 by 10 or more uh, feet. And uh, inside the uh, silo, there were tapes, literally tapes with robotic arms where they would store information that wasn't used. 
Um, today we can do all this electronically. In those days, you actually had to have a, a, a tape. So your uh, data center was confused even further because you had all this support equipment. You might even have desks in there. You might have uh, technicians who actually sat in the data center 24 hours a day and they actually manage things. Uh, today, it doesn't work that way. The data center is very, very specific to the, the, the hardware and, and what is required to, to do the job. Um, stationing people in, the, in that space anymore, it, it, it doesn't work. Um, equipment today is standardized on 60 hertz. The 400 hertz mainframes, by and large, uh, they don't exist or they've come a long way. What is required in the data center today is processors and communication that uh, takes the information, the data from a server to another uh, system in that physical space or to the outside world. Um, it is uh, highly regulated. It is um, essentially planned. Back in the early days, we really didn't plan much for expandability, for example. Uh, if you were a, a business interest, you, you knew pretty well what you needed and you never really considered that your data center was actually gonna grow. Today, that's not the case. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about enterprise. Uh, some of you may have heard of, of the term co-location. Well, what is a co-location? Essentially, that's one big space, one big data center that houses many different companies. You could have banking interests in there. You could have gaming interests in there. It could be a, a myriad and very diverse group of, of, of different business interests. Interests. In fact, many co-location facilities, they may even have a segment of their space dedicated to uh, government, for example. And that's generally a very restricted space. But again, um, the co-location is designed to handle a myriad number of business interests. You touched a little on tape libraries. That's something that I've never seen or worked with. But looking at the picture you have, it's probably 10 by 10, you know, 10 by 10 feet, uh, which is huge. I'm used to seeing a cabinet and nice organized rows, you know, three foot by three foot cabinets, super clean environment, and hundreds in a single room. One thing that comes to mind is the power density for that. I don't know what the computing power was, but when you look at a 10 by 10 cabinet versus now what's something around three by three, that's a lot more computing power that's all of a sudden in the same space. Um, can you touch a little bit on that? Yes, so um, very good point. So back in those days, our processing capabilities was much less. Um, you did not have the power density. What I mean by power density is power that is utilized by one piece of, piece of equipment, one IU of space in a cabinet rack that might be 42U high. It, it is much more dense. In those days, it wasn't as dense. So again, having the tape library in the space, it, it made sense because you could take the tape, think, think of it this way too. Inside that silo, there was a, there was a robotic arm. 
and essentially that robotic arm was on on a set of rails that was able to go to the address, the location that it was assigned to, and using a barcode reader of some description, it was able to identify the tape it wanted, it pulled it out, and it brought it out for uh, handling by one of the technicians on the floor who would then bring it over to the uh, equipment to upload the data. You could afford to do that then. You can't afford to do that now. Uh, you can't design today to have one physical space where you're dealing with this high power density and then you've got some ancillary areas that uh, essentially don't require much power at all. It, it does exist. You're going to have high density areas today um, and low density areas, granted. And you may have support areas, for example, uh, what they call meet me rooms, where the telecommunications to the outside world right. takes place. Right. I grant you all that. Yeah. But the area we're talking about, which is for processing, it is very exacting. Today, we plan for where we are today yeah. and for growth. Yeah. We're able to do projections today uh, that we can say, all right, in six months or a year, we're going to need more uh, equipment. We're going to need more processors, more servers. We're going to need more space. We design those things in advance today. In those days, your data center might have been in an office tower in downtown Manhattan, New York. Many of them were. And it was a relatively small room. But that was their data center. So, again, you, you had boundaries there, fixed boundaries. It, it was it was very daunting. One of the big things I wanted to share with the audience is back in the day, 40 years ago, even into the 80s, late 80s, confidentiality was very important. You did not discuss what went on inside of your data center with anyone else. Reason being, uh, we that type of information just wasn't shared. You essentially went in, you did your job, uh, and you didn't discuss either the job itself or the facility with anybody outside of the area. There were many uh, who had some uh, advantages over that, uh, where they might have had vendors or consultants who actually had gone to many different spaces and directly or indirectly were able to share what they had seen. Again, that was kind of a borderline situation because in most cases that was frowned upon. Uh, but information sharing was very, very limited. So over the years, what has changed? I know confidentiality is a big one. Um, you know, I can call up a contractor on the East Coast um, and say, hey, here on the West Coast, we're having this issue. How did you guys deal with it? What do you think about it? And you know they're pretty willing to discuss that. Why is that so common now um, and not necessarily back in the day? Well, um, there were many, mostly operators, data center managers, who realized <clears throat> we needed to have a forum, uh, an opportunity to be able to share information, to be able to talk about the good and the bad, the ugly. What have you learned? What have I learned? Um, we needed that. Uh, there was a, a group of individuals back in New York City who actually got together with the intention of creating a group, uh, creating a group of users, uh, 
And that group's name was actually the Uninterruptible Uptime Users Group. The UUG was the first of one of those organizations, and we have a number of them today, that uh, uh, allowed owners, operators to come in and, and, and they would give uh, presentations, uh, they would have um, uh, an opportunity to network yeah. and to talk. Again, I must emphasize that in that time, and this would have been the late 80s, um, that was frowned upon. And I can remember from my own personal experience being uh, when I showed interest in wanting to attend those, that uh, I was told in no uncertain terms, be very careful what you talk about, be very careful who you speak with. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so the UUG would have been the first of its kind the UUG, as it was known then, has gone through uh, a name change. And many of you might be familiar with the 7 by 24 exchange. Yeah. That actually is today's result of what was the UUG. We have other organizations as well. We have AFCOM for another. Um, we have more openness, more opportunity. That has been amazing and what it's been able to foster in the industry yeah. about sharing information. Yeah. Um, the 7x24 exchange, again, it, it is, it's not only have, not only does it have national conferences twice a year, but you have local organizations yep. and, and meetings yep. uh, throughout the year. Yeah. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to say when I came out to Kansas City, uh, we actually helped set up the UUG that was here in town, um, working with DST Systems. Okay. They were very, uh, they were a leader in, in helping to establish that. And I was privileged to be able to help them work with that. Uh, at the same time, there were those who were part of the original group who had, um, who came to realize that we are still limited as to what we can discuss because you come into a meeting, uh, you have to be very careful that you're not talking to competition, that there's the chance that uh, some of the information, you know, may be, may be used. So um, a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Brill, Ken Brill, uh, he actually created uh, the Uptime Institute, which was a pay-for organization where a data center would actually pay a fee every year to participate. Uh, the Uptime Institute was broken out into several different groups so that to be a member of one of the groups, you, you had to make sure that you weren't in competition with others who were part of the group. There's, there's more to follow on on that that I'd like to touch on a little bit later. Um, one of the things I, I skipped over there is, is talking about um, some of the technology that has changed that helped foster um, where we are today. Uh, something as simple as a battery. So the battery is the heart of your critical power system. And um, the batteries of choice at the time are what they refer to as uh, vented lead acid, right. flooded battery. So it had free electrolyte in it. You had to have a special battery room for it. In the 80s, uh, a new ver version of the lead acid battery was manufactured called the VRLA, valve regulated lead acid or sealed battery. 
it had a name that it was called maintenance free right. um which you know we can discuss <laughs> but the thing is that in itself was a a major influence as to what we have today uh you no longer need to have a, a centralized battery room you could have the battery with the ups module uh, an another thing to bear in mind is that the UPS technology itself has gone through a lot of changes. So in those days, you had to use transformers to essentially step voltage down, say from 40 volts to some other level to be able to operate rectifiers. They were the AC to DC converters inside the modules that also charged the battery. And then you would deliver it out probably through a transformer, which would be used for uh, voltage regulation and for filtering to essentially the critical distribution. Right. Along the way, we have moved away from that. Electronics has become much more robust. Yes. Uh, we have UPSs today that do not require transformers. So what does that mean? A, it's a smaller footprint. Two, it's more efficient. The transformers, by the nature of the beast, uh, it's got more losses to it. So again, you had to account for that in, in, in cooling and so forth. Now you have uh, uh, UPS systems that are transformerless and they operate at anywhere up to 95% efficient yeah. or more. So again, that was a, a physical change to the space that I didn't want to lose sight of. Uh, get, getting back to the UUG and the Uptime Institute specifically, I also wanted to share that back in the day, um, <clears throat> you didn't really have too many standards or policies written as to how you designed, operated, um, maintained a data center. So when the Uptime Group was first founded, you guys probably discussed a lot of that. A lot of that, a lot of that. So that's where uh, Uptime Institute, for example, stepped up and they're the author of uh, the tier standards, the performance levels. And uh, prior to that, there was nothing of the kind. In fact, uh, it was a user who had actually approached Ken Brill and the Uptime Institute looking for something that was a document that was pretty straightforward that they could present to management, to anybody, to explain well, if we design and operate at this level here, this is what you can expect in terms of availability and call it fault tolerance. If you design to the next level, you get this much more. And three, you get a bit more and so on. That was very profound because everybody could understand, okay, if I am a little bit more thoughtful, if I come up with a, a strategic plan as to how I want to own or design, build, operate, own that facility, I'm going to get a, a lot more benefit out of it. There were a lot of others at the time who, who also came up with publications similar to it. But the Uptime Institute has, uh, uh, tier performance levels, have stood the test of time. And whether we realize it or not, uh, all our data centers utilize some of those factors in there. It's the industry that is taught itself. And it was with the advent of UUG, 7 by 24, that we're able to share information, that we're able to establish best practices, 
also identify where there were weaknesses. Uh, we've, we've grown so much from that just by establishing those organizations. Well, and yeah, that really then helped Burke and the UTR Uptime Institute develop those standards. So now, you know, hey, I want to start this business. What do I need on the back end for all of the support and the networks and all this? It gives me a very um, good idea of what I need to get into in terms of designing the data center for my operations. So from an owner talking to a designer, now they can come back and say, hey, I need, I want a tier four data center. They might not know better and what the implications are of a tier four data center, but then a designer says, okay, well, if you want that, this is what it's gonna be. This is a very good idea of cost, equipment needs and all that kind of stuff. And then from there, you can really discuss what is your end goal and what do we need to get there? And hey, do we actually need to follow the tier four or can we actually bump it down to tier one? Right, so you're dead on it. That's exactly right. Um, so just as a, a flavor for some of those conversations, um, one of the big hot buttons back in the 80s was a, a problem related to harmonic distortion. Okay. And without getting into too much detail, essentially what was going on at the time, we had uh, the proliferation of all these pieces of equipment that had internal power supplies that were essentially drawing power from transformer, UPS system, in such a way that was causing problems, problems like heating effects, essentially uh, affecting the, the output voltage on some of these things. People were running around just, you know, the house is burning down. We have a harmonic distortion. It wasn't quite like that, but we had opportunities to actually have speakers explain to us what we needed to do. Manufacturers who came up with solutions to the problem. The thing is, it was much more, I would say, public within the industry uh, shared, and, and we all got to realize it. So little things like that. It sounds little today. I've heard many people say there is no such thing anymore. However, regardless, they're very, we learned from ourselves. Yes, there's a problem. Here are the approaches we can take to fix it. It was those type of things that uh, organizations like the UUG before and the 7x24 today um, actually uh, accomplish. If anybody's interested in harmonic distortion, uh, you can Google it and you'll find out what that's all about. Thank you all for tuning in to part one of our first episode at TechSperts. Uh, we'll see you next week as Ed and I dive a little deeper into the different tier levels and where data centers are heading in the future.